You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Uh, Ambassador Lippert is currently the Vice President of International Government Affairs at Boeing. Prior to that, as most of you know, he was the U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Korea. He has also served in a number of senior positions in the Department of Defense, including as Chief of Staff to Secretary of Defense Chuck Hagel and as an Assistant Secretary of Defense for Asian and Pacific Security Affairs. It was in that position that I actually first met Ambassador Lippert. He was kind enough to meet with me at the Pentagon when I was there, I think, as a second lieutenant which I always think uh, says a lot about people in important positions who make time to meet, mentor, and counsel those uh, below them. Ambassador Lippert also served in the White House as Chief of Staff to the National Security Council and in other senior staff positions in the United States uh, Senate. Ambassador Lippert is also a veteran. He's been mobilized to active duty with the United States Navy from 2009 to 2011 as an intelligence officer and this included a deployment to Afghanistan. From 2007 to 2008, he deployed as an intelligence officer with SEAL Team 1 in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom. For all of his service, both as a civilian and as a, in the military, he's received a number of awards and decorations. For example, he received the Bronze Star Medal for his service uh, in Iraq, the Defense Meritorious Service Medal, and the Basic Parachutist Badge. He's also the recipient of the Department of Defense's Distinguished Public Service Award and the Department of the Navy's Distinguished Public Service Award. Most importantly, as a fellow Stanford graduate myself, he graduated from Stanford with a BA in Political Science and holds an MA in International Policy Studies from Stanford as well. He has studied uh, Mandarin Chinese at Beijing University and obviously since I just heard him when we were having lunch, speaks Korean as well. So please join me in uh, inviting Ambassador Lippert to the stage for his keynote remarks. Oh, well, thank you, uh, Captain, now, I guess. Uh, been promoted and professor and a holder of many titles and real honor to be here today. And thanks again to Georgetown and USIP uh, for putting on a great conference. I got to hear a little bit of the panel before and I understand there was a really interesting discussion about Chinese views on unification and really, again, I think speaks to the work that USIP and Georgetown are doing on this issue. Um, let me also say um, I'm a little, little, little down this morning. Doosan, my favorite Korean baseball team, was beaten soundly by the Hanwha Eagles, so I'm a little down, uh, but uh, Doosan was on an eight-game winning streak and literally every day it helps both my, my excuse is it helps me with my Korean language but I do wake up virtually every morning and watch Doosan on the neighbor app I highly recommend it it uh, keeps me close to South Korea um, I, I think you know the the challenge of uh, giving a talk like this is the wide vari variety and deep expertise of folks in this room. Um, I think there are some people who know just a heck of a lot more about this subject than me. There are folks who, like General Pio, like Jaws over there, experts on military issues that, you know, they've forgotten more about military strategy and tactics than I will ever know. Um, so what I thought I would do here is just do about a 20-minute kind of primer overview 
um, to just level set and then really get into a Q&A because I think that's where the, the value is in these is really the audience experience and, and really inviting comments, not just questions because I think this is an environment, especially with, I'm looking out at the folks here, you just can learn a lot and that's what this really, this forum is all about. So let me dig in, try to do about 20 minutes, like I said, and why don't I start with something that I think is often overlooked, but incredibly important um, in all of this. It's, it's the neighborhood, the neighborhood in which this is all operating. And people often wanna go right to the US and North Korea and sort of don't necessarily take into account the context in which, the regional context in which this is happening. Let's just go through the neighborhood, and I know some of this is self-evident and obvious, but it's always, I think, important to remind us why this issue is so important. One of the reasons it's so important is the neighborhood in which it is unfolding. First, you know, if, you do, if, you, if you're around foreign policy circles long enough, people know one of, if not the most important foreign policy issue that you deal with is nuclear weapons and nuclear weapons policy, right? It is, in many respects, there's a reason people who are expert in this are called theologians, right? That's, that is uh, the status in which this uh, part of foreign policy is held. And in this issue are three of the world's nuclear weapon states, three of the five declared nuclear weapon states. You also have North Korea, obviously, with its nuclear weapons program. That's, that's why we're here. And then you have a lot of countries, Korea, Japan, Taiwan nearby that, that, could, that, could, that could break out uh, as necessary. On the economy, this really is the flight deck of the world's economy. The United States, China, Japan, Korea, four out of the top 15 economies right there. So if you have a disruption in this neighborhood, it's not gonna just be regional, it's not gonna just be in Asia, it's gonna be global. Uh, third point you people uh, often overlook is look at the treaty alliances in the neighborhood. Of the five treaty allies we have in Asia, two are right there, obviously, within close proximity. The Philippines, not far away. Um, 80,000 U.S. troops in proximity, the world's only U.S. forward-deployed aircraft carrier. We also have our obligations under the Taiwan Relations Act as well. And so that, that is also, there's a lot of commitment there by the United States. It's a, obviously, it's a, the other thing, too, that people often forget, it's a hub-and-spoke alliance system. It's not a NATO, it's not a collective security architecture, so that complicates things in a way in terms of the way the U.S. has to maneuver through these different alliances. There are also critical bilateral relationships. Look at Beijing, look at Moscow. These are important, often complex, sometimes difficult issues for the United States. And then uh, locally, you have really deep, often unresolved or under-resolved territorial and regional issues that I think add to uh, the difficulty, the degree of difficulty here. So just, I just wanted to set that, that up at the, at the outset. The second thing I wanted to do quickly is just go through my own personal assessment of where uh, the DPRK is, uh, just in terms of its leadership, and we can get into their motivations later, I think, in the Q&A, but just a little bit of a uh, <coughs> sort of a scene setter at first. I do think Kim Jong-un is in control. Um, I do think he has control of the regime. Uh, through a number of different instruments, the family name, uh, the elite's fear of um, the regime collapsing and, you know, the whole hang together, hang separately uh, colloquialism you hear. Um, I, do, I do think that, you know, he is uh, a rational actor on the scene. 
I think there's an open question that's always interesting uh, dealing with any country of how he perceives the world, how he perceives the United States, and I think we're going to get a lot more clarity on that uh, in the coming days with the inter-Korean summit and then by the end of June. And that, that's an interesting question. Um, thus far, up until this point, you know, really the last month or so, what, what has been interesting is he has looked very different from his father, right? He has been much more black and white. Um, he has shown much less faith in diplomacy and negotiations. Uh, and I think, you know, if you talk to folks, you'd often get into a pretty interesting conversation, right? You would get into this conversation of, well, is he really smart and perceptive? In other words, is he essentially accumulating as much fissile material, nuclear uh, missile technology, to set himself up for a bargain or a negotiation, or is he missing opportunities uh, in terms of diplomatic outreach? One could argue the 2015 aborted trip to Russia, the lack of conversation with Beijing, the uh, failure to follow through on inter-Korean talks in 2015 with the Park Geun-hye regime. Is he missing opportunities to otherwise divide the coalition that is against him that has proven pretty robust in terms of sanctions. So I think the jury was still out, and it still is out, but that's often the debate you'd get into. Is he just avoiding smaller, uh, what you would say, smaller negotiations to save up for a big one, or is he is he in the regime missing opportunities, not seeing those opportunities, or just doesn't believe in diplomacy? And I think that's an interesting question um, as well. I've always said, the, the last point I'd say is what, what I think is interesting here is last two points is one i felt you know he's in control rational my own belief though the model he has built is hard to sustain over time if not impossible um it's hard not to have no relationship with beijing right it's hard to have your hard currency come way down dramatically there are a whole host of other things but it always always made me feel about a year ago that he was going to have to the regime was probably going to have to make some sort of diplomatic move um, relatively soon uh, to address some of these shortcomings. And I think one of the most interesting issues that they probably have to address are markets and information flow. Um, we've seen that in terms of uh, the, the, the book North Korea Confidential, its review in the Chosen Oboe, and the North Korean regime's reaction to that, which I think is, is a pretty interesting data point. Um, so I, I have always felt that, you know, the model isn't necessarily sustainable. There probably needs to be some sort of diplomatic move. I think there's an open question as to whether or not this current round is that diplomatic move or not, or if it's more of a stalling tactic. More on that later. Last, I think just, the, again, self-evident, self but what's interesting here in terms of the negotiations is the Kim Jong-un regime, the North Korean regime, especially over the last five years, has made, you know, obviously nuclear weapons, uh, the nuclear power status, a key component uh, of the regime, right, and its legitimacy, and I think you know that makes it uh, a little more, a little less incompatible uh, with some of um, the negotiating aims of the United States and the international community. And you know, we've seen recent uh, comments in the press that the North Koreans are committed uh, to denuclearization, and I think that is a very interesting question which needs to be uh, looked at in the coming days and weeks. Let me maybe just take a, a quick run through kind of the recent history um, and talk a little bit about um, kind of the, 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 I would say, almost dramatic turn of events we've had over the last couple of months. Um, 
you know, first there's the Olympics, right? Everybody followed that pretty closely. I think there's a question about the DPRK motiva motivations here. Um, I think, you know, first of all, I think they did want to participate in the Olympics. I think there's some of that. Second, I think the field in terms of a liberal South Korean regime, a conservative United States presidency looked very familiar. I think they also felt that there was uh, very little cost to participating and in fact allowed them to test uh, if the South-South split is alive and well. It allowed them to try to increase their popularity in the short term. So there was a lot of benefit to uh, participating in the Olympics. And I think it, by, by most analysts' measures, they not only uh, ran the play, they ran it pretty well in terms of the Olympics. It did give the South Koreans, I think, a, a, an important opening and opportunity to, I think, express uh, a certain degree of warmth, I think, to test where the North Koreans are and to follow up. And so then we have, we're quickly into their, the, the follow-up meeting in Pyongyang uh, between the uh, South Koreans and the, nor and the North. And, you know, I think if you, if you read the press carefully and you talk to South Korean friends, during the meeting, the North Koreans committed to denuclearization. They uh, agreed to let the U.S. ROK exercises go forward. And the South Koreans did make a strong point of emphasis on the need to remain firm on sanctions. Um, I think there was also a recognition between the two Koreans, the two, the two Korean uh, sides, that as important as inter-Korean talks are and as important and as sacrosanct as the peninsula is to um, the Korean people, that the United States had to be part of this equation. And I think that's precisely what Moon Jae-in, President Moon, was trying to do, which was trying to bring the United States back to the table. Um, what's interesting here is, you know, that there has not been a lot of um, direct statements or conversations by the North after this uh, summit. You have a little bit. Uh, the language looks fairly familiar. Um, but you have, on the other, on the other hand, you have the exercises did go forward, and there seems to be some interesting private messaging uh, that has unfolded here as well. So squaring that circle is important down the line as well. The, the, only, the only other thing I would say, you know, in terms of what I think the South Koreans are after here is obviously they want denuclearization talks. They are interested in de-escalation of tensions and possibly more engagement going forward. I think within the confines, though, that the South Korean side has been very clear about uh, not, no preemptive reduction in sanctions, and has taken, I think, a very pragmatic centrist uh, line here. I think one of their, also their overriding goals is to try to set up the U.S. and the DPRK for a successful summit. And I think what, what is really key in the inter-Korean uh, summit coming up is to find out where the DPRK is on some of the, their positions, what is their definition of denuclearization, and how does the South Korean government then vector in and out of this conversation in the run-up, during, and after the summit. Uh, let me just uh, come to a pretty interesting thing in terms of South Korea. You know, the president will be maneuvering in a very interesting political environment. The, 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 I would say the Korean population is broadly supportive of Moon Jae-in's agenda, and you look at his popularity, 60 to 70 percent. Um, you know, from a guy who, when he ran for president, was at about 40, 45 percent. That's where he kind of moved. He's 30 points, 25 to 30 points above where he has been uh, during the campaign. You have midterm elections in June, which everybody is watching closely in South Korea. You have an opposition that is, does not seem to be unified. And, you know, the history of Korean politics in a grossly oversimplified way is the, the, the unified and organized side seems to win. 
Uh, and you look back at the last midterm elections, the conservatives looked like they were headed for a supermajority only to have uh, public uh, infighting break out, fall out, and they were punished at the polls for it. The role of youth is interesting. I mean, I think it's widely reported here about the young uh, Korean population's, I think, skepticism about North Korea. And you saw it in a little bit on the backlash of the hockey, hockey team decision. So I think it's a very interesting time in South Korean domestic politics. And I think that's an important factor that a lot of people don't uh, follow closely. Let me just quickly make a couple comments about the roles of the regional actor. I know we've had panel discussions on that here, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. But uh, you know, I think the Chinese seemed in the short term, I think very pleased with the, the outcome in terms of getting folks back to the negotiating table. It seems like they're trying to figure out where they go from here uh, in terms of the medium term. And then longer term, I think uh, I'm hoping that the panel uh, solved uh, the unification question in uh, Beijing's mind. But that, that, that's an interesting, tricky issue for them. You know, the Japanese, I think, were surprised. They felt a little isolated. But I think now that you've got a, a summit coming between the president and the prime minister, I think that will be resolved pretty quickly. And then, you know, the Russians are out there as well. And that's, that's, a, that's an interesting question, their role in all of this. What does this mean, I think, for the U.S. DPRK summit? I, I, I think let's, I, I'm not here, I don't have answers, solutions. I think if I predicted it accurately, I would be doing something else, working in the financial markets, because I would be a, a wealthy man. But let, let, why don't I sort of go through and sort of say what I think's old, with what I think's new, and what are some of the, the key questions and outcomes. First, you know, what's, what's, what seems old is that, you know, first, we're, we're back in kind of talks with the North Koreans. Second, the language out of the North Korean, as I, as I mentioned, does not seem all that new. A little bit new, but mostly old. Um, we are talking about denuclearization. The, the things that are, are, are out in the ether, our peace treaty, that's all, that's all old. That feels very, very familiar. And again, we're now, we will now be on the third iteration of the inter-Korean summit talks. That's, that all seems kind of standard and has been out there. What's new, there's some interesting new things. Uh, first, obviously, um, you have the, the president of the United States meeting with the leader of North Korea for the first time. The size of the North Korean program is different. Sanctions pressure more severe than it's ever been. Um, the exercises continuing, I, I think, is an interesting variable as well. The other thing, too, and I think you know this was well laid out in the New York Times today, is that this is early in the president of the Republic of Korea's tenure. You think of when Kim Dae-jung, Nomi Hyun met. Nomi Hyun was almost out of office. Kim Dae-jung was latter in his term. So you have a, a possibility of repeat summits as well. And the, the, the South Koreans have already talked about that. You have public opinion in the Republic of Korea, as I mentioned, which is dramatically different uh, from when the last time you had really inter-Korean summits in the Nomi Hyun or Kim Dae-jung administrations. You have, and then also you have I would say China's place in the world is very different than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago when this kind of swir a, a similar swirl happened. Um, you have some interesting possible outcomes. You could have um, you know, a, a good meeting that is largely symbolic. You could have a meeting that is you know, symbolic with some substance, kind of, you, you kind of, and you punt, or you could have a framework that comes out. And you, you read again the South Korean statements today, I think they are hoping very much for the latter, uh, you know, some sort of framework that puts together a grand bargain. Interestingly, of course, the uh, the the U.S. and the, the North Koreans have been quite quiet on this, and I think that's I think that is really interesting. Is where are we headed with that? 
the, the risks are, are, are pretty self-evident. You, you obviously, if you have a bad meeting, a bad summit, it's, it's hard to see where you go on diplomacy next. I think, you know, the good news is you do have an, a, a, a Republic, president of the Republic of Korea that's early in his tenure, that I think is resilient and committed to diplomacy. So that's less of a risk than it might otherwise be, but I think that is still out there. Um, you have obviously the North Koreans making a meal of that internally, that in terms of their own propaganda. Uh, you have um, the fact that these opportunities don't come along very often, so you need to make the most of them. Um, and then I think the question to me is, what do you do out of this on sanctions? That's a really important variable going forward. So let me, let me wrap up and just say, um, in, get, in the interest of getting to questions, a um, couple of quick things. Um, first, I think what, and I kind of touched on this earlier, but I just kind of wanted to, in conclusion, kind of give you some of the things that I am gonna be looking for as now someone, an analyst on the outside who's incredibly uh, committed and interested in this, but obviously has no formal role. Um, what I would say is first, you know, how do we, even though we have seemingly incompatible long-term goals between the US and the North, Korea, North Koreans, can we find some sort of short and medium-term agreement? And I think that's uh, obviously an open question, but a very interesting one as well, is how do you square the circle on different long-term goals um, in the short and medium term. And, 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 and that's probably you know, something that comes down to a lot of the definition of denuclearization and how that's interpreted. Second, what are the various negotiating strategies? Are we playing for time? Is this a real change? What is the timeline here? And I think that's, that's obviously key. What is the appetite coming out of the summit for reduction of sanctions? I just view the sanctions as critical. I think they have been really important in getting the North to the table. They're really, I think, the most important piece of leverage. And so what's the appetite going forward? This comes to the next question is, can we get a better read on how much pressure Kim Jong-un and the North Korean regime is under at this point? You know, that's a, that's a hard question, but will the two summits shed any light on that? And can we then vector and or change our negotiating strategy? Comes to the next question, which is, can Kim Jong-un's regime continue to sustain itself? This is not the 1990s with famine and collapse of the Soviet Union and, po and post-Cold War, but it is an environment in which they are under really unprecedented sanctions pressure, which I've said before, and how much longer can they go on this? Um, I've always felt personally that they've had to make a move, and the question is, is it shorter term, is it medium term, is it longer term? And related to that, is this Therefore, is this latest round and entreaties by the North, is this a stall? Is this a play for time? Is it a play for hard capital? Or is this a real sea change in response to an international community that has um, really, I think, uh, put a lot of uh, unified around this question? And then last but not, not least, what I would say is, um, and this is the big black box that's going on right now, what are the outcomes of this flurry of diplomatic activity? Uh, and I think, you know, the more insight we get on that, what's going to come out of the President-Prime Minister Summit, what's going to come out of the all of the talks that we've seen various and sundry uh, reports about, where is that going to lead us going forward? So those are kind of my universe of questions that I'm watching. It will be nonetheless, you know, something that will be interesting for all of us Korea watchers to uh, really, I think, dig into, analyze, really try to try to discern. But I think longer term, I just coming back to the very first point I made about the region, this is incredibly important. It's an incredibly important moment in history. It's an incredibly important time. And I think that 
it's not just about Korea. It's not just about Northeast Asia. This is about the world. And the entire world was watching. And so uh, I, let me end by saying, you know, the stakes really are high here and really important uh, for everybody. So with that, let me open it up to the questions. I prepare, I, am st I stand ready to be peppered, uh, corrected, amended, told how wrong I am. But I just did want to level set everybody before we got into questions from this very, very esteemed and distinguished audience. Thanks. Thank you for those remarks. Um, before we open up to questions, I have a few of my own um, to get a, a little bit more out of you on some of the topics that you raised to potentially um, inspire more questions from the audience, which we'll do in probably the last half an hour or so of this session. So my first question is you began with the regional dynamics and you ended with the regional dynamics about how important those are. Um, and I was wondering from your point of view, what would really be game changers? with respect to, for example, relationships, bilateral relationships between countries like South Korea and China or Russia and South Korea. And the, the basic premise of this question is to ask what would be the ideal strategic environment for us to be able to resolve this North Korean nuclear issue? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I guess this question takes me back to really the, the, the gambit that Pak Geun made with Xi Jinping early in her tenure. I mean, you, you had this interesting dynamic where Xi Jinping for the first time in really modern Chinese-North Korean relations came to Seoul before he visited Pyongyang. And that was a really interesting uh, time because I think some thought, well, are we actually witnessing uh, a fundamental realignment uh, here? So I think what would be ideal going forward is obviously, um, you know, I think more alignment between Chinese, South Korean, and U.S. I would say short and medium term interests. I'm gonna be a realist here and say, look, our long term interests are something that are really big, really important. We've gotta hammer those out. Those are big, huge issues. We've got summits coming up in weeks and months. So I would say over time, if in the, in the, the short and medium term issues, if we could see those three countries, obviously with our good friends, the Japanese involved, more of an alignment in those short and medium term goals. And I would hope that that would be you know, a real outcome of uh, some of this important di diplomatic flurry that's going on right now. So this conference is about primarily the relationship between China and North Korea. And as someone who speaks a lot about that issue, I can never go through a conference or panel or something without someone asking me about Russia. And I never have really a good answer because as a China specialist, uh, I don't really see Russia playing a big role. It seems like they're relatively uninvolved right now at least. So do you think the United States should be promoting greater Russian involvement? Do you think um, they're gonna stay on the sidelines? And just in your experience as ambassador, is that assessment of you know, Russian influence or involvement declining over time an accurate one? It's a, it's a great question. Well, where, where the Russians have really shown up in force is uh, at the UN, um, using their uh, vote veto on the, uh, the, the permanent five to I think influence and shape sanctions uh, questions, uh, and moreover, remind people that they are in the region, that they are in a, a voice that needs to be accounted for. So what I would say is, you know, I think it's important to, to your point not to forget about the Russians, to make sure that they are accounted for, uh, engaged with early. You know, often it's the Koreans and the Japanese who have 
better success these days uh, in terms of engaging with the Russians. So perhaps that's an important role that those two countries can take on. You know, more broadly, I think, you know, the, 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 the trick here is going to be, um, you know, for the first time you have a U.S. DPRK kind of bilateral dynamic at, at, the, at the leader level going. And then how does that coming out of that translate into um, more multilateral diplomacy, which I think will be ultimately required to, to solve this. That's, I think, point one. The second point is then, to add to that, is how does that square with, as I mentioned in the speech, really an a, a early in his or her tenure president of the Republic of Korea having these meetings and going forward if you have repeat inter-Korean talks. So how do you square the circle between the U.S. DPRK bilat, how do you how do you square the circle between the inter-Korean talks, and then make sure the neighbors and other regional players that will be important uh, in this in this conversation are are accounted for and and uh, you know engaged with. So we have the inter-Korean talks coming up. So it's a very exciting time that every week something exciting happens. That then we have to rethink all of our assessments. So we won't hold you to your answer to the next question that I have. But I'm curious on what you think through this, at least a diplomatic process, hypothetically what you think South Korea can live with in terms of an agreement. What is non-negotiable for South Korea? What do you think maybe the United States is willing to put on the table that the South Koreans aren't? And do you see any divergence in uh, the views of the Moon government versus elites versus the domestic public on this particular issue of what can be obtained through negotiations? Well, um, each of those questions is an all-day seminar run by Frank Alm uh, that will be coming later. Uh, the, I guess what I would say, you know, those are huge questions. Um, I think what's, as I mentioned a little bit, and I wanted to make sure it got in there because I know this is primarily about DPRK China, but I, I mentioned in my speech, and you touched on it in your kind of your last question, is public opinion in, in the Republic of Korea, which I just find incredibly interesting, and I was having a conversation with Scott Snyder before, and we were both kind of nerding out on it. Because um, it is a factor, I think, in a way that is, again, new on the scene. And I think, it, you know, you look at the generational cleavages in their approach to North Korea, and I think that is an interesting variable that is going to be, you know, I think over time, something that the, the Blue House will obviously have to account for. Um, like I said, I think right now they're in great shape. They're at, they're at 60 to 70 percent. But you know what? What you've seen in, in South Korean politics, if you study it, is you know the public opinion changes pretty quickly, uh, and two months is a long time in South Korean politics. So I think that is going to be something that is going to have to be managed through, just like any democracy. But it's I think it's newish in terms of its complexity on the North Korean question that did that was a little more manageable, I think, in in 20 years ago. I think you've gotten just more public opinion has sort of gotten more, um, you know, you know, almost crystallized and almost bifurcated into different quadrants that is more complicated. So that's point one. Um, you know, in terms of what, I, I, I'm going to come back to this again, but I'm more, having worked in the government, the way I would be thinking on this is, obviously you've got your long-term goals and you want to have an idea of where you're going, but right now, given that you have this almost, these summits come at you in such rapid succession. I think my, my short term and my, my short term and medium term objectives is to figure out what we can do in that time period to both advance our key interests, keep momentum going, and then make real progress on the denuclearization 
uh, and missile questions. And I think that's where the trade space is on all this. What, what can they live with? I would say, you know, look, I think the most important thing I think to the South Koreans is, is having a good summit, holding firm on sanctions questions, de-escalating tensions, but then I think trying to set up the U.S. and the North Koreans for a successful summit. And as a footnote here, I would just say I do think the South Korean government has really held the line, I think surprising some commentators on exercises, on sanctions, on uh, certain areas. So that, that I think will be kind of their, their minimum, which is I think holding the line, continuing to make clear to the North Koreans where the red lines of the international community are, but also then getting into a real negotiation over denuclearization and what that looks like. So in terms of holding the line, I, I've heard that too, that the South Koreans have done a really good job of you know, stating what their position is and sticking to it. We heard today, I think, on the second panel about in the face of Chinese pressure even to sign something, saying that they were against alliances, they were unwilling to sign that. Um, and there's another new factor in this whole dynamic, and that's the current U.S. administration. Um, and when people discuss the upcoming summits and talks, there's also concern, and it seems to be exaggerated one way or the other, that either these talks are kind of a pretext for some sort of limited military conflict, or President Trump is going to give away the store, right, and sign away some agreements with Kim Jong-un that includes withdrawal of all U.S. troops from the Korean Peninsula because that fits with his narrative of not being so involved overseas. Outside of the United States, though, are these things that the South Koreans are worried about, either the sort of uh, use of talks as a pretext for military options or that the United States is going to make some sort of agreement that's not yeah. going to be to their benefit? I mean, it so I was in South Korea a couple weeks ago and, you know, just on vacation, actually, and, uh, you know, it w opinion was all, all over um, the map. You know, I mean, um, this, in a way, you know, the fact that there was... I think such a surprise about the summit, it really befits uh, a, a favorite saying of mine, uh, or a friend of mine told me that I like to repeat, and you know, everybody says South Korea is the land of, of morning calm, and, and my friend said no, it was just like my first month as ambassador, he goes, they say it's the land of morning calm, and what you gotta remember, it's the land of morning surprise, uh, and, uh, and so it was kind of befitting that at about seven o'clock Eastern time, right in the morning period of, um, of, of in South Korea, you know, there you have the National Security Advisor and the uh, Republic of Korea Ambassador of the United States making what was largely a surprise announcement about the summit. Um, so what I would say is I think, the, I think people are still kind of sifting through this issue in terms of what it means, but I do think that by and large, South Korean public opinion has turned more skeptical to the North. I think it does augur well for uh, holding the line on sanctions and for, I think, a pretty um, a clear-eyed view of the North Koreans and what their uh, objectives are. So I think if you're asking me where the South Korean population is, I think it's generally supportive of talks. Uh, I think generally it's, um, but generally you look over, especially over the last seven, eight years, it's generally a more clear-eyed view of the North and its objectives. So that will be, I think, an interesting dynamic which the Blue House and, to a lesser extent, the United States and others are gonna have to navigate through. Giving away the store, preemptive, sure, like, there are always voices on every side of the spectrum who like to make news, but I think most people are kind of in a meaty middle of, let's wait and see. Uh, let's see what happens, let's get on the other side of this, and then we'll make uh, a judgment uh, as to where to go from here. So one of the big factors about where this is gonna go is uh, 
North Korea's own objectives. And one of the big aspects of the debate is whether Kim can give up his nuclear weapons and stay in power. I guess more importantly, does Kim believe he can give up his nuclear weapons and still stay in power? Yeah, and I think that's really, you know, it comes back to your first question, um, you know, or your, your, your question that you just asked, which is, um, you know, part of why there's so much speculation or why there is a little bit of uncertainty or I would say unformed opinion uh, that seems more fluid is nobody really knows exactly what the North Koreans want. The language, as I said, looks a little old in some of their statements. That's, that leads one to the classic conversation about what the definition of denuclearization is or is not and may include. On the other hand, you know, you have sort of interesting new elements, right? And, you know, you, you, talk, you talk to people in this town a couple of months ago and they said, well, this is all just a big setup uh, and there was gonna, you know, this was a way to force a split in the alliance and to have um, basically the North walk out uh, during the exercises and resume test. That has not happened yet. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a pretty interesting um, sort of conversation. And to, to your point, I again, I think that's, an incredibly important long-term question, I'm sort of figuring out, okay, that, that, that question is something we have to address, but if we got there, that would be a really good thing if we were talking about single digits of you know, possible nuclear weapons material, and how do we manage the short and medium term, I think is really what folks are focused on, and that's where I would be sort of focused on, with an idea of where I wanted to head long-term. But so my, my answer to your question is, I do think that, that if you get there, the environment is gonna look so differently, it's really hard to make a judgment up front on that, but I, that's what would lead me back to the, the short and more medium term questions. So in the short term, right now we have the summits coming up, the diplomatic options, the Trump administration is continuing, at least for now, the maximum pressure campaign in addition to introducing this, this new diplomatic element. In discussing how this diplomatic element is gonna go down, we've talked about the idea maybe Trump will give away the store or it'll fail or it can succeed. We could get some sort of agreement or a timeline for longer term denuclearization, maybe something short of it that's more of a freeze to the program. But what do you think, if you had to sort of predict or if you had to advise this administration about how to get the best outcome, what can the United States do in this lead up to this summit, maybe even during the summit, following the summit, to ensure that we get the best possible outcome? Yeah, I'd say three things. Um, I mean, this is all about leverage, right, uh, at the end of the day. So to me, in the run-up, you're trying to maximize your leverage. And so that in, includes three things. First, you know, unify your allies, friends, and partners, right? I think that's incredibly important. Make sure at, a, at its core that you and the South Koreans are aligned and then more then reach out to the Japanese, you're obviously your treaty ally, and then figure out your China play, right? And that's, and then obviously not forget about the Russians, but getting that is incredibly important, I think, in the short term. Um, I think the second thing that I would be doing, and it related to one, is making sure that you are as solid as possible on sanctions, because I do think that that is your leverage, that's what you're gonna have to uh, trade away over time, um, and sort of figure out what the game plan is there. And then third, obviously, I think you're trying to suss out where the North Koreans are, right? And that's, you know, if, if, if these reports are true, sussing them out through the direct G to G talks that are going on, sussing them out through the South Korea, the, the North-South talks, sussing them out through the, the inter-Korean summit, I think that's incredibly important because 
again, what's a big unknown here, if you're the US coming into this, is where exactly the North Koreans are, what are their definitions, and how is, is there continuity between the Kim Jong-un and his father's regime in terms of some of these policies, or does this represent a sea change and a real opportunity uh, to make rapid progress on some of these goals like denuclearization? Well, thank you for answering all of my questions. I think, I think we have put forth a lot of uh, interesting ideas and topics that will spark some discussion. So I'm going to go ahead. We have a little bit over a half an hour to get to questions. Um, when I call on you, please wait for the microphone. I know you. some of you will forget, and I will remind you to introduce yourself. And, and please make it a question versus commentary. And I'll start um, over here. Hi, uh, my name is Jenna Gibson. I'm with the Korea Economic Institute here in DC. Um, I think the Trump and Moon administrations have made it clear that their primary goal is, you know, talking about the nuclear program um, to the exclusion of some other issues that might come up, such as cyber, uh, chemical, biological, even human rights. So I'm wondering your thoughts on, is that the right approach? Should we focus on nuclear first before digging into any of those at some point? Or what would be your advice on how to possibly integrate some of those other issues as well? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. You know, you think about it a lot, and it's, it's one of those that doesn't have a great answer other than, than I would say, I, if, if it were me, I would be on the denuclearization track. It's the most, I think, dangerous. It's the most, um, I think, um, imminent uh, in terms of just how big the program is. I think that's, that's sort of how I define that. I think that's, so that's where I would be. You know, I do think that the good news is on some of these other issues, especially human rights, you know, now the, the, the conversation has been multilateralized a bit, especially after the Kirby report, all the UN action. So you could, on that issue, you could put a lot of emphasis up front on, on the nuclear question while making sure your multilateral diplomacy was engaged on something like that. You know, the other thing that I think, you know, we haven't had a real, you know, serious conversation about in almost two decades is missile technology. And that probably has to be brought in sooner, uh, sooner rather than later as well. So, you know, it's a really hard, I think, unenviable task to figure out how to prioritize those, but I would probably put denuclearization at the top of the pile. I'd focus directly on that. Uh, that's where I think the international community's sanctions efforts or concern is. So I think making progress on that is critical. And I do tend to believe the theory that if you can make progress there, it will unlock some of these other at least security questions in terms of bringing them in. The human rights question I think is harder, uh, but incredibly important to have the conversation on. And so that's why, you know, this sort of back of the envelope thinking would be how do you kind of structure your bilateral, your regional, and then your UN more formal multilateral diplomacy to come in together simultaneously. Gentlemen over here. Oh, there you go. Peter Humphrey, analyst and a former diplomat. Uh, closely related, um, the most lethal weapon is not the nuclear weapons, it is the prison camps which account for about four or five nuclear weapons worth of death so far. We have zero chance of getting rid of those, zero chance of getting rid of the entire biological infrastructure, zero chance of getting rid of the entire chemical infrastructure, zero chance of getting rid of all the missiles, and zero chance of having IAEA inspectors 
run all over the country at will, uninhibited. So what's the point? I don't, I don't believe in magical thinking. What is the point? Why, why, why even go to this summit if there's zero chance of getting what you, what you, what you absolutely must Let's have? Say it's even more pessimistic for me. You said you're former diplomat. Yeah, I mean, I guess what, you know, we could have a discussion about, you know, that's, I think it would, it's an interesting conversation about whether you should, you know, should we have agreed to the summit or not, right? That's, that's a whole nother, but I guess what I would say is we are, we are where we are and going forward, what, what is the, the probability of success? But I, you know, it's an interesting question uh, that, you know, uh, that it's worth a discussion on, right? So, um, what is the point? I think, you know, first, I, I, so I'll, 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 let me play devil's advocate. I'll give you the positive side of the story, right? Um, and I, I guess I would say first, you know, look, you just, you get leaders in a room, you never know. You never know what's going to happen. Uh, and maybe there is some sort of breakthrough. Uh, that's probably not a great chance, but it's an interesting dynamic. Um, second, you know, I think the, the point is in the run-up to this uh, is, I think some will argue that you will get a flurry of diplomacy and maybe some, some issue will break free. Um, and that's kind of why I got to the, the different outcomes in the summit, right? You could have kind of just a meeting, nothing comes out of it. You could have kind of a meeting that you get a little substance or you could get a real framework out of this. And I guess it's the smaller chance of getting a, a big framework out of this that I think excites a lot of people. You know, I'm less, um, you know, I'm less enthusiastic about just a summit for a summit's sake, uh, but I do think that if you do feel that you, if you're in the government and you feel you can make some progress on some critical issues, freeze, maybe start a rollback, and have a real conversation and a real effort towards denuclearization, then it's probably worth it. Um, hard question, though. I think your, your, your other points are really spot on, right? The, the, the hard thing about this is the denuclearization issue is incredibly difficult but it's not the only issue out there, right? I mean, there are so many tough issues with the North Koreans um, on this and how to, how to figure out a way forward on any of those issues is really hard. Final point, I'd say, you know, I had this conversation with, you know, I, when I was ambassador and, and it was, um, the North just wasn't interested in talking and, you know, the Obama administration was trying to figure out where to go and I had a former very senior diplomat in the U.S. side come and just said, you know, we've got we've to start somewhere. And that's, there is some of that thinking that I think still permeates, you know, the State Department and others in, in terms of making an argument, at least for a conversation and dialogue going forward. So um, I don't have a great answer for you on your question, uh, but I, all I can say is that I think there are real pros and cons with the summit. Um, but the fact of the matter is we're likely going to have a summit. And I think the, the challenge for the U.S. government, and obviously I don't work for the government anymore, is how to maximize your chances for success and minimize uh, the downside risks, and that's probably what they're doing now. The woman in the back. Hi, my name is Soyoung Kim from Radio Free Asia. Uh, so it could be a follow-up question regarding the upcoming summit between uh, the U.S. and North Korea. So a lot of experts I've talked to told me that like we don't see any specific conversation about the denuclearization and because they're probably just you know gonna talk, uh, they might bring up about it, but like they are not really gonna talk about anything specific. So 
in your opinion, um, what kind of rear picture you can imagine when Trump and Kim Jong-un are actually sitting on the same table? What do you think they are gonna actually talk about? Um, I know, you know, if you would ask me this question about President Obama, at least I would know new President Obama so I could give you some sort of answer. I, I just don't know, you know, I just, I just don't have a good, um, you know, I've never met either one of them, so it's impossible for me to answer that question. Uh, the gentleman in the back, and then we'll work our way around. Yes, thank you. Good afternoon, my name is Lee Jong-un, PA student at America University. My question is, in your view, how important is the location of the summit? And as an outsider, what location would, would you recommend for the summit? Yeah, good question. I mean, you know, I've, I've run through this in my own mind. And, you know, there's the obvious, you know, candidates are Sweden and Switzerland in terms of being the neutral nation states that still are extant up at the, uh, you know, that demilitarize them and still have a formal role. You know, those are technically the UN side, you know, the North Korean sides, I think it was the Czechs and the Poles, and they have since departed in that role. So those two seem to be the most logical in terms of, you know, within this institutional framework that still exists uh, coming out of the armistice and the Security Council resolutions that date back to the Korean War. Um, on the other hand, you know, I've seen the, the one that makes sense in the region in terms of, um, you know, proximity in terms of having a, a relationship with the North Koreans that is unique is Mongolia. Um, that, that I saw, that makes a lot of sense and the Mongolians have always had that, that kind of interesting relationship with the North Koreans and you know, they're, they're a country that has, you know, in terms of the US relationship has really grown exponentially over the last five to 10 years as well. So that, that's intriguing as well. Um, how much importance do I put to the locality? I, you know, hard for me to say. I, I, it, I, it tends to be, if, if you're not gonna have it in North Korea or the United States, the significance of it diminishes uh, in terms of the, the importance of the location as an operative variable. I think, you know, much more important is the negotiating positions, the willingness to talk, the definition, so on and so forth. I, it's something that's interesting that people like to talk about, but, you know, I think once the talks start, the, the more, much more important things are just where the two sides are in terms of their alignment and willingness to talk. This one gentleman in the back, yeah. A few more camera, visiting scholar at the Georgia Washington University. Um, I guess you understand how dynamic uh, the South Korean politics is. And there are uh, many age cohorts that have a different understanding of America. What measures can or should be taken to improve a mutual understanding between South Koreans? Yeah, and great question. I mean, this is, you know, I know, everybody asks me about North Korea and it's, it's obviously, you know, the topic that every, you know, folks are rightly um, concerned about. It, are you asking me what my, my real passion is? It's, I really am interested in South Korean domestic politics and sociology, right? I mean, it's just, it's a really interesting thing that doesn't get, I think, enough attention. Everybody, I'd be sitting there as ambassador, I'll just tell you, I mean, and again, it's, it's, it's right, the, the, the problem is a global problem. It's a critically important problem. It's a historically um, interesting moment. So it's right to talk about the North, but I would always be sitting in my office as ambassador and I get, you know, journalists or people visiting and they just, 
they'd ask me 10 questions about North Korea and maybe a half a question about South Korea. And I, you know, I always felt that you know, South Korea is a huge, important, big country in and of its own self. It just happens to be in a really a dynamic and interesting neighborhood surrounded by really, really big countries. Um, and I always said if you lopped off South Korea and dropped it somewhere else in the world, you would pay much more attention to it as a bilateral relationship. So it comes to your question, you know, I, you're, you're exactly right in terms of, you know, you see these real cleavages in generations in South Korea. And some people will attribute that to, to their rapid uh, development and, and rise and in industrialization over a very short period, arguably the most spectacular and quickest democratic development story in the history of the world, right? So, so I think to get to your point here is that you do have very different views of the alliance of North Korea, uh, of the world in the, embedded in these generations. Uh, you know, and so I think your question is how do we make this better? I think, you know, especially for the younger generation, it's figuring out um, you know, that the younger generation in South Korea communicates in a very different way. It's a lot more online, just like the United States, and how do you have that conversation through a completely different medium that you're used to with you know, the, probably the two older generations that, that, that come before them. And then I think on, on, on the, the other two generations, obviously they, you have very different experiences. The older generation in South Korea, still you have the Korean War memories. That's one that you still have to work on through a very, I'd say more traditional lens. And then I think that the 386 generation is interesting because it's, it's changing, right? It's, it's, the 386 generation is in power now. It's, it's the, probably the most um, dynamic in terms of where it, it was to where it is. And so I think that's, that's the one in terms of, of how to communicate. I think there, I'm a big believer of uh, kind of the, the people to people diplomacy. I'm a big believer of track two conversations. I think my point here with, especially with 386, is you've got to get it out of the government to government channel. That's an important, you have to have a good government to government relationship, but the relationship is so much bigger than just a G to G relationship that those other components have to be emphasized in order to, I think, make progress in understanding our, our two peoples. There's a young man up here front. Hi, my name's Justin Lewis. I'm a student in Georgetown Security Studies program. What lessons would you take from the failure of the 1994 agreed framework that could be applied towards strengthening any future diplomatic agreement on denuclearization? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, you know, and you talk to those folks who have been um, around it, um, and it's a really, you know, the, the history there is so important and something that, you know, we, we do have to learn from. I guess, um, you know, a couple lessons. First, you know, I think obviously, and the world is very different from where it is, where it was then to where it is. But I think, you know, if you looked at, had you had to do it over again, probably more consultation up front, right? I mean, the whole, it's well, well publicized, right? But, you know, not having the, the South Koreans in the negotiations and then essentially handing them a bill for fuel oil, that always created angst and problems that probably, you know, slowed down. I think that's sort of, I, so I think the point comes to a little bit what we were talking about before, using this time to make sure you are really aligned in your interests. I think that's point, point one. Point two, I think what, what is interesting is it does show that the North Koreans, you know, if given the right set of circumstances, can go down the road of negotiations. But I think, you know, you can, you, 
and I think this is the, the third big lesson that I always sort of take from it. You know, it's one thing to negotiate, it's another thing to implement, uh, and it's another thing to adhere to the agreement. And is there in that process of adherence and implementation attempts at renegotiation? And I think that's something you just have to account for in your negotiating strategy up front, is that, you know, it's one thing to negotiate with the North Koreans, but their history, especially now over the last 25 years, has so clearly shown a proclivity to cheat and uh, under, undertake a range of other problematic behavior that you almost have to figure out how to build that into your calculus as you're coming into the negotiating table. Final point I would say, look, there's a whole history here um, in terms of, um, you know, where South Korea and the United States were, transition between two different administrations in the United States. That's like an all-day seminar that's really important history. But, you know, if you're asking me the big lessons to try to boil all this down in a really short answer, it's pre-consultation alignment up front. It's factoring in, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's the North Koreans at times will negotiate. They have shown a proclivity to negotiate. 2015 as well, like on the demilitarized zone, they were, they negotiated very, very rapidly. But then again, negotiation, renegotiation, implementation, and adherence, verification are critically important questions as well. Professor Xu has one. Stella Xu from Ronald College and one of the panelists for the morning session. And I hope you don't mind sharing some of your personal journey in your official career. Um, so one is that um, you were in Korea still in a very pivotal like a moment and uh, would you mind sharing like one positive side what is the, what is the most like a accomplished moment that you have and also very inspiring to to you and the other side is that uh, um, so what have you have wished that you could do a little more or a little differently so being away from your office for a little bit so um, good question. Um, well, first, uh, you know, uh, I guess the, the thing I survived was uh, Jaws, General, uh, General Jaws's uh, retirement ceremony, which I think was freezing cold. Uh, I'm joking. I'm joking. No. Um, uh, what I would say, I, I, it's a point that I was just going to make in a, in a joking way, is like you're asking me, um, you're asking me about sort of my experience. I think what what I came away with is like you're only as good as the team around you in Korea. And being in the ambassador in the U.S. in being the U.S. ambassador in the Republic of Korea is unique because the only place you have, you know, a unified four-star, sub-unified commander, sorry, there with you, and two three-stars, and how that team works together. Um, you know, most ambassadors show up; he or she is by far the senior person. You show up in Korea, and you have an embassy, two to three hundred people really uh, committed interagency, a lot of diplomats, but then you go to USFK and you have essentially 30,000 people there and a four star and two three stars and oh by the way, um, all the military assets and a chain of command that runs through there. So I think just the lead in point is that you've got to work together as a team and you're only as good as the colleagues you had and we had, just I just want to point out to Jaws, he was an excellent colleague while he was, while he was there and you know, that's, that's point one. Um, most you know, interesting moment um, was obviously the knife attack. I mean, it was a, you know, crazy interest, you know, you're, I'm just, you know, somebody told me, it's like, that's gonna be on your tombstone when you, uh, when you die. And I said, yeah, I guess that's probably true. And you know, that, that's where you just see, where you saw in a matter of three days, a range of different emotions, 
aspects um, of, of, of South Korea, and you know, almost all of it was positive. You know, with the exception of the one to two minutes when you're being physically attacked, the response was amazing by the South Korean people. And that's what I always say, the, 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 the last point I'll say on this is, you know, the true test of a principle, the true test of an alliance, the true test of a friendship is not when things are good, it's when things are bad and how you respond in that adversity. And it, the, the response was just amazing. And I still, you know, I think about it, you know, once, you know, every couple of days I think about it and I still kind of get half choked up, you know, just remembering like some of the great things. And I'll just, you know, you think about like thousands of people outside your hospital room, you know, I mean, it's, it was amazing. And then, you know, like you're, you're, you're out of the hospital and the South Korean government shut down all the traffic in Seoul to get back to the residents and you're like, that, that's just amazing. And the, you know, people for who you haven't heard from in years, you know, showing up in your hospital room or emailing you. I, it just, in a way, I just will stop here. It's, it, it just, you saw it. There are moments where you see the very best in people brought out, and that was one of those moments. And it's great. I get to live with that memory for the rest of my life. Well, what, what I wish I would have done more of on the, on the other side of the ledger, I guess, um, more time. Um, you know, you... Two and a half years, it was great, but you know it's endless in South Korea, and it was just a fantastic, uh, fantastic experience. You know, I guess you'd sort of say, do do you, you know, I, had I had a little more time, I would have, you know, liked to have done um, a little bit more on what I called sort of the new frontiers issues. Like everybody comes to South Korea, they want to talk about the North South issues or secondarily, they want to talk about the economic issues. And there's a whole emerging set of issues in the US ROK relationship, cyberspace, energy, environment, public health, you know, AI, all of that. That's an incredibly important basket of, of bilateral issues that will define this relationship going forward. It also gets to the younger generation, draws in different segments of society. So if I had more time, I would have put more focus on that. And, that and agreeing to swim across the Han River in sort of September are my two biggest regrets. Anyway, so I'll stop there. <laughs> uh, the gentleman here all the way to the left. Thank you, Joel. <coughs> Excuse me, Joel Starr from USIP. Uh, Mark, uh, good to see you. I was uh, working for Senator Inhofe when he was over on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And you're in the reserves as well as I'm as a lieutenant colonel in the US Army. I wanted to ask you about conventional forces. You just talked about the uh, two three-star commands, the joint commands, the UN command, US Army. How is that reflected in the move from Yongsan to Camp Humphreys, and how is it perceived by the North Koreans from a conventional forces standpoint? Great, great point. Josh, chime in here, please. You know, uh, I mean, I just, you know, my, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I, my sense is, you know, first, the North Koreans have largely um, fallen back on asymmetrical, asymmetric capabilities um, in, in the face of what I would say, not quite overwhelming, but I would say significant conventional superiority between the US and ROK and our combined forces are very, I think in terms of the gap, it's big and it's getting bigger. Uh, so I think to your, to your question, I think that makes the North fall back on cyber, undersea warfare, um, nuclear and missile programs, things that, and special operations forces, I think, you know, 
I want to say, you know, they had a big parade in Pyongyang, I want to say about a year and a half ago, I'm kind of off date, but first time special operations forces were featured in that parade. Um, so I think that is where you're seeing the trend move. Um, and I think it's, in a way, it's in now, it makes it a very difficult problem because you have to maintain your conventional superiority and account for these other factors, which the North Koreans, in some of them, are quite good and capable. So how you, it, it, I think it is a, a test of the agility of the alliance uh, moving forward. On, on the move, I don't, I don't see the move as something that necessarily has a big um, impact on the North Koreans. You know, I, I think, you know, to me, a symbol of the world's, I think it's our biggest military base outside the United States, maybe even in the United States, um, at, at a cost of $10 billion that the South Koreans are paying 96% of, um, that's a huge symbol that we're there to stay. So I think that, that to me, are the, are the big takeaways. And I think just going forward, the challenge will be how do you stay, it's always in this alliance, you, you, you've had success in the deterrence mission, how do you, how do you keep that success and broaden that success into these other areas? How do you deal with the reality of having most of your force presence down south and keep that connectivity that I think has worked so well between USFK, CFC, and the ROK military? And then finally, how do you deal with just a, a dramatically changing security environment in Northeast Asia? Um, and that's why they pay you know, um, General Brooks a tiny government salary. Uh, to, 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 keep, uh, to keep watch over all that. But in all seriousness, it's why we generally send our very best uh, to, to, South, to South Korea. And you've seen it, I think, reflected in you know, promotions recently. General Scaparati to, uh, to, to, to UCOM, others, they're promoting people out of Korea because I think now the people realize just how important the mission is out, out there. Josh, please, amend, correct. We have General Pio there too, so you know if you want to, uh, please uh, chime in as well. Hi, I'm Jean-Marc Juas. I'm a former Deputy Commander for U.S. Forces Korea and UN Command Korea. And uh, uh, Ambassador One, it's great to see you here, and I just want to say thanks for your great service to our country. Uh, it is appreciated. Um, one of the team members that I think would be critical going forward here would be the U.S. Ambassador to Korea. Um, position hasn't been filled. I'd like your thoughts on that and what the impact of that has been over the past year uh, based on your past knowledge and also your discussions with your South Korean friends and what you think that impact may have going forward. A good question. Um, you know, first, let me just say, you know, I do think, you know, there is a very capable uh, charge in South Korea, Mark Knapper, uh, you know, there's a guy who, I always feel bad because you know you always get the question and y it makes it sounds like the embassy's empty, right? And it's full of very competent um, uh, career officials there. And you know you look at you know uh, Mark Knapper, Ed Sagerton, the political counselor, the economic counselor, Choi Yamamoto. I mean, these are top flight uh, U.S. career diplomats that have served elsewhere. Mark, you know, speaks three languages. I mean, just an amazing guy who will be an ambassador one day, I'm sure. Um, you know, what, what I would say is, you know, Korea is kind of the sweet spot in terms of it's an incredibly important relationship, but it's one that I think is hard for the two sides to manage through capitals. Um, you know, some relationships, having worked in the White House, you do a lot of management through capitals, right? Uh, 
the UK is like that. You know, the time zones, you know, the language, that, that, that sort of, and now communications, you, you can kind of do that, right? Um, I, it's harder to do that um, through, from the USROK relationship, and I think that's why you end up with a premium on the US ambassador and the USFK commanders and their deputies. Uh, so I think it, it is a place where the ambassador really uh, does have an impact. I think the, 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 the mitigating factor here in this case, besides a competent charge is two things. One, the fact there is a four-star commander out there, there is that full complement, that does help cover down. You obviously want the job filled, it, it always, all things being equal, um, you know, and assuming you get the right person, obviously, you know, it's always, you're always better off. And I think it does, it is important in terms of the day-to-day -day momentum. On the other hand, like I said, there's some mitigating factors. One is um, the, uh, uh, the, 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 the USFK command structure does help a, a bit. Uh, and the second, it's pretty interesting, I think, you know, all of the high-level attention uh, that it's getting does kind of force more management from capitals. But, you know, where it really shows up is I always say, like, the, the, the top-tier issues tend to get taken care of, right? It's that kind of 1A, 1B, 1C, two third tier issues that, that tend to, where the ambassador can kind of go in and, and elevate those issues. I think that's where there's a really uh, critical need. Um, you know, and finally, you know, I'm a little biased. I would just say, you know, I, I, uh, I um, you know, I, I'd like to think the job was consequential right, when you did it. But I would say, I think the other thing it really, it, it, where, where you, where it, where it shows up is a lot in the public diplomacy, a lot in the people-to-people -people diplomacy, and a lot of who is the public face of that relationship. Obviously, the president's the public face day-to-day -day, uh, on, on the macro sense, but in terms of who the Korean people engage, who the Korean people see in the media, who the Korean people um, you know, kind of interact with, I think that is where the ambassador really shows up. And let me just end on this point, you know, in a country with you know, depending on how you count it, five to 11 national newspapers, an unbelievably interactive social media scene, um, you know, and a, one of the world's most vibrant democracies, the public diplomacy piece is really, really important than it otherwise might be, so I'll stop there. I think we have time for one last question here in the back. Uh, thank you very much, Ambassador. I'm a reporter from Hong Kong Phoenix TV from China. Uh, my question to you would be, uh, you just mentioned that uh, China's role has changed dramatically uh, in the past uh, years, decades. My question would be, how has China's role changed? Um, also, what does the U.S. expect China to do specifically addressing uh, this uh, peninsula issue? Thank yeah. you. Well, um, this is, you know, there are many more China experts here than, than I. Uh, but. You know, uh, what I would say is look at the time period between, you know, I guess if you want to use a benchmark, you kind of have to pick an arbitrary place, but maybe the time of the first inter-Korean summit with Kim, Kim Dae-jung, right? And look where China has come economically, politically, militarily. Um, you know, it's, it's influence on the world stage. It's a very different country in terms of just um, its prominence, um, you know, at least in modern times. So I think that's really, it really an important and is a key driver in terms of uh, security, economic, political uh, machinations in Northeast Asia. So I think that's sort of the short answer to your question. Um, you know, what does it expect uh, out of the Chinese? Uh, you know, I think 
it's you, you really have to ask the administration on that. You know, I'll just say from, you know, when when I when when we were in office with the Obama administration, what we were trying to do is obviously, um, in you know, put up the denuclearization uh, issue as the most pressing concern with with Chinese leadership. And the second thing in terms of is just was. Uh, was that, look, if the North Koreans, which they didn't want to do after the Leap Day deal fell apart, if they didn't want to negotiate, we were left with a pretty binary choice in terms of sanctions. And it was working with the Chinese to craft and implement uh, robust sanctions because the Chinese we knew could move the needle on the sanctions unlike any other country. So that's what we were after in the Obama administration. And, and to its credit, the Chinese uh, moved uh, and moved dramatically uh, during President Obama uh, time in office in his conversations with Xi Jinping. They moved off of longstanding red lines and you ended up with you know, two, I would say, pretty robust uh, Security Council resolutions in 15 and 16. Um, you know, I think the question is going forward, what is enough, how fast, uh, how rigorous the, the sanctions will be implemented. That's all a conversation between, I think, the China, between Beijing and Washington that is critically important both in the run-up and uh, the aftermath of these summits. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Mm -hmm.